So if you want to open to 1 Timothy, we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, and I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what with is but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. So we'll likely uh, have you say that every single week. So the quicker we catch on. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, welcome to Church of the City, where we do not avoid the tough passages. 
Um, it is so good to have everyone here today. And I am hopeful that as we look at this text today, that we can do it in such a way that is, that is honoring to God, that is honoring to one another, and is honoring um, ultimately to the leadership in a local church. Now, when it comes to controversial topics within the church, uh, I found this thing from Gary Brashears um, from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. And he has categories for how he talks about doctrine um, around where do we place different doctrines within Christian community and within specifically the local church as we're thinking about it. His first category, and we can go to the first slide there, Pauline, um, are things and uh, doctrines that we would die for. So for example, uh, if someone were to hold you at gunpoint or a knife point and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And if you say that you do, I will take your life right now. You would hopefully as a believer, say, yes, this is who I believe in. So this would be a doctrine that we would say you would die for. You'd be willing to die for uh, Jesus Christ. The second category are things that we will divide for. So for example, the Protestant and the Catholic Church, uh, our disagreements around uh, authority, uh, needing a mediator between ourselves and God. We believe that Jesus is our mediator, and so therefore each of us can individually confess our sins to God and to one another. Another example of things we would divide over is the nature of the Bible. So some people believe that the Bible is inspired by God and therefore is authoritative, which is our stance. We believe that the Bible speaks to us today, not solely to the context and cultures in which it was written, versus people that say that the Bible is just an amazing collection of human books that speak wisely. This would be something that we would divide over. The next category are things we're going to debate for. So for example, uh, the sovereignty of God. Uh, some people would fall into what is known as predestination. Other people would fall into a free will camp. This is something that we debate over. The topic of women in the church, as we're going to talk a little bit about today, as our passage does, is also something that will be under debate for. And then finally, number four, are things that we decide for. An uh, example of things that we decide for is uh, an example of Genesis 6. Maybe you've read it before. And you have this Nephilim. Now, some of us are like, Nephilim, read Genesis 6. And these are things that you might think, I think it's this, or I think it's that. But these are things in theology and in doctrine that we decide for. They're not things that we necessarily need to debate for. Now, here's the thing, okay? And this is very, very important. What we are prone to do is move things into categories that they're not intended to be in. All right? And usually the way that this works is I'm going to take a decide for and move it into debate for, and I'm going to take it into debate for, and I'm going to move it into divide for. And as a result, unfortunately, what we have is a very fractured church where people that would be more charismatic or a belief in the gifts of the Spirit than they're available today which we believe here at Church of the City, uh, but we've been known as a Baptist church, which historically has not necessarily been known as that. But they'll say, we're going to go be a Pentecostal charismatic church. And so then what you have within the church is a divide between those who believe in the power and the works of the Holy Spirit in today's life, and then you have those who would say no and hold up the scriptures rather than the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, this is an example of what has happened as time has gone on. So I think that that is helpful because as we discuss today what we're looking at, it's important to know that the topic for today uh, in various passages is something that we will debate over. Uh, you can be a loving follower of Jesus and disagree with our church's stance on what we're going to talk about today. 
All right, so can I just say that? That said, I will present what our belief is and why it is that way and hopingly you understanding where we are at so that at the end of this seven-week series on the book of First Timothy, you can hopefully sign a membership agreement and say, I am for the vision and mission of this church and I want to be walking out that in daily life. Make sense? Ready to get into it? All right, so leadership within the church. I want to first make an apology Because I'm sure if you have a background within the church, you have been part of a church where the leadership abused their authority. There are many people that are now saying, I'm not for the church, I'm not involved in a church, because of the way that they were treated when they were part of a local church. Maybe it was that you felt like the church was misogynistic. Maybe it is that the church said, well, we want to be this way, but in practice, they weren't actually being that way at all. And so in the way that I am able to apologize for the church, I would ask that you would forgive the church. That we would be a place and that we would be known as a church where there is healthy leadership. Now that said, the topic, in, a topic that comes up in this passage is the role of men and women within a local congregation. So to understand our gender roles and our gender distinction, I'm going to first ask that we go to Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20. In order for us to understand why God created man, why God created woman, and then how that relationship is to look, we need to go back before the fall in which God sets forth what his design is for our genders. So Genesis 2, verses 18 through 20 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Men, aren't you happy about that? Amen. Amen. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What do we learn about our gender? What do we learn about the design of God? Well, number one, and you can, if you have the sermon note and you like filling in the blank, feel free to start filling it in. Number one, what we learn in this text and then as we do a survey of the scriptures is that man is for woman and woman is for man. Now that sounds quite basic, but that is actually quite countercultural. That man is for woman and woman is for man. That God designed man... There was then his, the rest of his design, and he saw that, and Adam saw that he was lonely, and there was not someone else for him. And so God said, I will make you someone exactly for you. So we learn that man is for woman, and woman is for man. Secondly, what we learn through this text and through the rest of the scriptures is that men and women equally bear the image of God and are created distinct. Men and women are equally bare the image of God, yet are created distinct. Now, what we understand is that you and I are created in the image of God. Now, let's think about God here for a quick second. We in Christianity believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons. 
So we have Father, we have Son, we have Holy Spirit. Each of them are equally God, yet they are distinct in person. And as God created the fab work of you and me, that we were to then be made in his image, he made us equal, but yet distinct in our different genders. Woman is described in this passage as helper. Now, before everyone starts freaking out, what do you mean helper? Come on now. This should not offend Because remember who Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as in John 14, verse 26. The helper. And why is a helper needed? Because the man cannot do it on his own. Women. The man cannot do it on his own. Men, you cannot do it on your own. And so if you are lording it over, the person that you are in relationship with, that this is all about me, I can do it, then you're wrong. And the scriptures will call you out on that. Later on in the scriptures, we see the example of marriage in Ephesians 5, which is compared to the relationship of Christ and his church. In this text, we see that as Christ died for the church, husbands are to die to themselves and for their wives so that their wives may thrive and flourish. Now, typically people have started in that text, and as the order of the text goes, wives submit to your husbands. But remember later on, it says, husbands, die for your wives. So what would you rather do, die or submit? And then as the church submits itself to Christ, as he died for the church, wives are called to submit to themselves to their husbands as Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, the scriptures talk about this dying to self. And the scriptures talk about this leadership of the man in a relationship in an interesting way. And there are texts that refer to a word called headship. And so I think we need to define that right off the bat. This is what, when the scriptures talk about headship, this is what it's talking about. And this is from a guy named Matt Chandler who coined this definition. I think it's helpful. Headship is the unique leadership of a man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. Hear me. It is the unique leadership of the man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. And when men do not serve and lead in this unique leadership role, culture suffers. The home suffers and the church suffers. In psychology today, there's a guy by the name of Ray Williams. He says this, not a Christian person, about the unique role of men as fathers in relationships different than where, what women can, can do within a marriage relationship and within the family. We read this. And this is our, our next slide, Pauline. At play and in other realms, fathers tend to stress competition, challenge, initiative, risk-taking, and independence. Mothers as caretakers stress emotional security and personal safety. Father's involvement seems to be linked to improved quantitative and verbal skills, improved problem-solving ability, and higher academic achievement for children. Men also have a vital role to play in promoting cooperation and other soft virtues. Involved fathers, it turns out, according to one 26-year longitudinal research study, may be of special importance for the development of empathy in children. Family life, marriage, and child-rearing is a civilizing force for men. It encourages them to develop prudence, cooperativeness, honesty, trust, self-sacrifice, and other habits that can lead to success as an economic provider by setting a good example. 
What's amazing is that as you study the research on this, you remove a man from the family, and the family suffers. The individuals suffer. Children are far more likely to not pursue healthy lifestyles. Is this just because biology? Or is there something else to this? Now, I need to make a point about authority and headship because this might make some of you, you're maybe already feeling a little bit, ah. Authority and headship in the scriptures has nothing to do with domination and everything to do with service. Authority and headship in the scriptures has nothing to do with domination and everything to do with service. Jesus, in the Great Commission, says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Notice what he says earlier on in his ministry. I came not to be served, but to serve. So what does the unique leadership, the unique headship of a man in a relationship look like if emulated after Christ? It looks like self-sacrificing love and service to the family and to his spouse. So what does this then look like as we look in the scriptures? It is a responsibility released by a woman and it's received by a man. This means that whether in victory or defeat, the man bears the responsibility and he now sits under the weight of this responsibility. You know, when you give responsibility to someone else, it means you no longer need to be ultimately concerned about it. This is what men are called to. Now, I just want to make a side note. If you are a guy in here and you're already starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable, good. And women, do not be sitting there looking. <laughs> you listen to this? I've got to send you, so I've got to send some other guy the podcast when I get home. It's part of our design. Now, the next point I want to make is that still part of this is a mystery. There is a mystery to this. There is a mystery to our distinctions. Now, I'm not standing here saying that because of all of this, then the man must be the sole financial provider of the home. But what the man looks out for is the health of his home. That his home can thrive and flourish under his leadership. And that as he works with his wife, he is dying for his wife in every which way so that she may flourish. So, if again, you are a woman in a relationship and you feel like you are under a dominating force, then your husband is not submitting himself to Christ ultimately. And he is not serving you in the way that he is called to serve you. Well, let's go to the text. Oh, one more point. Woman relates to man in a way that nothing else in all creation could. She is the joy of his existence. She is like nothing else that he has ever seen. Think about this. Adam has named the animals. Boom. Naked Eve shows up. She is made for me. Incredible. So this is what I hope. If men are serving, as I just described, will not everyone be served well? Example, if you are in battle, uh, military-wise, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being a proponent here of military battle, but if your leader says, I'm going in first, follow me, is that not someone that you would be willing to follow? Rather than someone says, okay, everybody, you go in. I'll stand and make sure we're all in line correctly. And this is the example of what we are calling men to within our congregation. 
And I'm saying that if this is done well, which I admit is rare, the church and home will be life-giving. And women will be encouraged, cared for, supported, believed in, and serving well in the local church. And we see women serving in countercultural ways throughout the scriptures in the patriarchal society that it was. So this is what we're calling ourselves to. This is our desire. Now, back to 1 Timothy, all right? Because now we've got to address that, that difficulty uh, text. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 15, we're going to study first. Now, the summary of what we can say is going on within this text is that there, this is about corporate prayer and specific issues arising from corporate prayer and Remember, this is, a, this is a passage and this is a letter that Paul is writing to Timothy uh, because Paul, Timothy is going to be taking up the anointing and taking up the leadership and the continuation of, of Paul's work on the earth. So we read, First of all then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what is Paul first passing on to Timothy? He's saying this, there are all sorts of prayer, and all sorts of prayer are necessary for all sorts of people. What we identified in chapter 1 last week is what the gospel is, who we are, that we are helpless and lost. And what needs to happen? Well, Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. The Father accepted that sacrifice. And why did he accept it? Out of grace. So what is our response to the gospel? How do we live gospel-shaped lives? The way you do so is being a people that prays that others who are not followers of Jesus would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He first asks for prayer for the authority, for quality in their leadership. Now, I imagine that if you're living in the States right now, and you need to start praying for your president, or your people that you might be electing, this will be a particularly challenging passage, given the outcome. But notice how we're not called to ultimately deciding, but we are simply called to pray. And why is prayer so important? Because prayer breaks our hearts for the things that break God's. You ever wondered about that? Like, why do I pray if God is all-knowing? Because part of prayer is coming to a place of wanting things as much as God wants them. And as God desires that no one should be saved, when we pray for people that don't have relationships with Jesus, it breaks our heart that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So here's a question. Does your heart break for the lost people in our city? Does your heart break for the lost people that you work with? Does your heart break for your neighbors who will die and could die tomorrow and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because in order for you to have a passion to see people come to know Jesus, your heart has to break for them. And when you come into knowledge of what Christ has done for you, you want other people to know that as well. So Paul starts with, it says, you must pray for leadership and pray for people who do not know Jesus to come to know Jesus. Now what's interesting is at the end, in verse 7, we read that Paul addresses the Gentile community. Now why is Paul addressing the Gentile community? Well, he's writing to Jews 
who are living amongst Gentiles, and Jews didn't like Gentiles. So this is the extra challenge. Paul is saying, as you pray for the people that you like to come to know Jesus, so you must pray for the people that you don't like to come to the knowledge of Jesus. Who is something, someone that you have maybe not forgiven, that you need to forgive, and then pray that they come to Jesus? Who is someone that you're saying, they are so far from an understanding of God, I don't care about them, and they, they'll never do it? So the gospel doesn't just propel us to the people that we like or that are like us. The gospel propels us to people that are not like us. Because what did Jesus do for you and for me? Well, we were not like him, yet he came to us to save us. So it propels us to do the same with other people. Verse 8, this gets into the section that's a little bit weird. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So men, what are we called to? What is the thing that Paul is addressing here? Well, men, Paul is in some ways suggesting that the go-to for many men is anger. So when you're in the corporate gathering, you are called to be leaders in corporate worship and prayer. To step up, to raise your hands, to be, if there are people that were to come off the street and say, in culture, men are oftentimes diminished. They're oftentimes portrayed in in, uh, animation as idiots or in uh, mainstream sitcoms as being idiots. And women are always the smart ones. That when, we, that when the culture would come in here, that they would see that there are engaged men in our worship services. That there are engaged men in our children's ministry. Why? Because men are called to service and sacrifice. So we lead the way in this. So men are called to be leaders in prayer. Women. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, As I talked about last week, the Bible is an ancient text. It was a form of communication to ancient cultures that we do not fully understand. So this text is primarily written to correct a problem of what is going on in the Ephesian church. Do you want to know what the problem is? I don't have to tell you. Do you want to know? Yes. The problem that is going on is that high status, mostly Gentile women who were educated and teachers in their own religions came to Christ and believed that they could immediately assume important roles in the, ter- in the church. Primary teaching is an example of that. Many of these women came from worshiping the goddess Artemis, who in that culture was considered to be the mother of life. And it was customary for women to braid their hair and add gold out of their worship to this goddess, Artemis. So Artemis also taught that sin, sin came into the world through a man. Artemis, in, their, in, the, in the mythology of her, helped deliver her mother's child and her brother Apollos. And therefore, women believed, and this is the cultural context, women believed that if they did not remain loyal to her and stay in the religion of Artemis, that they would die when they went to have children because she was the mother of life. So if I become a believer and I go to have a kid, Artemis is going to kill me. So what is Paul therefore addressing? Number one. You don't have to dress 
like the goddess and do your hair like her. Instead, do good deeds, and this will show that your allegiance is somewhere else. So you don't need to continue dressing like Artemis requires you to dress. You're a follower of Jesus now, and you will be known for your good works, not by the gold or your braided hair. It's primarily about hairstyle. Secondly, you must listen and learn before you assume leadership. These are women that are coming in believing that I can just do whatever I want as I was doing in my other religions. And Paul is saying, no, you have to sit and you need to learn before you assume a leadership role. Thirdly, you don't need to fear death through childbearing. Instead, continue in faith, love, and holiness, and modesty. So it's not about, well, if you have a child, or if you, then therefore you're saved. That's not what it's about. It's assuring women that came to know Jesus within a culture that if they're to give birth to children, that they're not going to die and Artemis is not going to kill them. Okay? So I hope we can rest assured with that passage and with that verse. Now the question is, well then how do we apply this text to our culture and context? Well, I believe that as it relates to dress and modesty, as I learned that women primarily, if we're to go to our distinctions, at times primarily struggle with comparison and perfection. Comparing yourself with others, wanting to be looking perfect. So to apply this, what better better way to do this than in dress? There is nothing wrong with desiring to be attractive. Seduction is the problem. So if you are a woman who professes godliness and desires godliness, dress is a way for you to show this. So if this text of verses 1 to 15 is primarily about how corporate worship affects evangelism, how is someone who does not following Jesus supposed to interpret from you if you are dressing seductively, yet you're claiming that Jesus Christ is now my identity? That I don't need the affirmation and approval of other people because I find that in Jesus Christ alone. So what Paul is addressing here is the way that we present ourselves matters in how we reach people that don't know Jesus. Now, I would argue, too, that this matters how we portray ourselves on social media. And once again, how do you expect to be a witness to the transforming life and new image you have in Christ by posting scandalous selfies? How is someone supposed to go and say, well, that person must love Jesus if they're desiring for your attention or desiring for the world's attention in how many likes they can get on these pictures? We then go to the topic of teaching and authority as the text indicates. Now, is this an authority that is forever to be diminished? Can women never assume any form of leadership? And to do, understand this, we need to go to understanding what the Greek word authority and what is talk, being talked about in teaching. And here's a quote from uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York on their understanding of what this teaching that is in mind here and what sort of teaching is in view. The teaching in view here is the teaching done by recognized leaders of the church. Secondly, when Paul uses the verb to teach or the noun teaching, he refers to the teaching of the core or foundational truths of Christian doctrine. What Paul designates then to men only is the preaching and teaching ministry of the church in the core truths of the gospel. 
In the words of Daniel Doriani, the point is not that men must do all the teaching or that women must never teach men anything. Rather, Paul says that men who are tested, approved, and consecrated by the church must preach, teach, and defend the gospel of Christ. We continue. Paul also restricts the authority of to men only. Paul does not envision an, an abuse of authority, but has in view a right or positive exercise of authority, which he forbids women from practicing. However, like teaching, Paul is not forbidding every sort of leadership for women in the church. Women certainly did lead in the early church and do lead in many important ways. Paul's instruction is that men must bear the final responsibility for the direction and governance of the local church. So what is this leadership as according to the scriptures called? Well, this leadership, as we understand the scriptures and as we study them, is the role, as we're now going to look at, in the qualifications of elder. Now, to understand this completely, we have to understand what's the difference between an elder and then a deacon. And so I have some specifics of what this looks like. So the roles of this specific male authority of headship in the church is the teaching of core foundational truths of Christian doctrine and gospel defense, and bearing final responsibility for direction and governance of the church, which can also include admission and dismissal of church members. Now, who wants to be part of that? And that's all we're talking about here. So we want women to be serving in everything apart from these two things. And as we look at our leadership structure— we see that as we desire our elders to serve, they are going to be primarily responsible for these things. Meeting with new people when they come to our church. Welcoming people into membership roles. If someone is walking out of line with a, a relationship with Jesus and is walking in habitual sin, our elders are the ones that will go into those meetings and conversations and say, hey, you're a professing follower of Jesus, yet you're also a member of this congregation. What's going on? And if this person is unrepentant of their sin, the elders will ask this person to step away from the church for a certain amount of time until they come to a place of repentance. This is the responsibility that Paul is leaning into. Let's go to chapter 3. And we first have, what are the qualifications for this particular role? Now notice how Paul introduces these qualifications. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseers, he desires a noble task. Now, what's interesting about this is that these aren't just men that are just nominated for the sake of being nominated. These are men that are desiring this leadership and responsibility, that are living already into these qualifications. And then the local church says, let's have them serve as our elder because we're already being served well. And so what are these qualifications? Number one, above reproach. What does this mean? A man is free from serious character blights, is respected by those who know him, and is widely known to live a godly life. Husband of one wife. To be a qualified, a man must be exclusively devoted to his wife, having a deep emotional, emotional social, and sexual connection with to her. He is a one-woman man, and others see and know this. So there should be no wonder of our elders, are they flirting with other women in the church? He's a one-woman man. He's all about his wife. Now, 
related to this, women are recognized in prominent leadership roles within the New Testament, but we see that there's still this distinction of elder. We have prophetesses, who are Philip's daughters, in Acts 21, verse 9. We have deaconesses, Phoebe, in Romans 16, verse 2, and Tabitha, in Acts 9, verse 36. We have an apostle couple, Andronicus and Junia, in Romans 16, verse 7. We have a disciple couple, Aquila and Priscilla, in Romans 16, verse 3, and in Acts 18, verse 26. And then we also have co-workers in the gospel with Paul of Judea and Syntyche, in Philippians 4, verse 2. But still, there is that distinction of elder, and we talked about the differences between elder and then deacons. This man must be sober-minded or temperate. This means that the elder is to be self-controlled, not led by his emotions or lust. He has freedom from debilitating excesses of rash behavior. He's focused on the emotional life of himself. He's able to control his desires through the power of the Holy Spirit. He must be self-controlled, so he must have a sound mind. He's able to focus and not be distracted easily. He has good judgment and common sense. He's hospitable. What means that is that he loves strangers. He's not cliquish. He's a friend of sinners. This is not specifically just addressing that he's good at hosting people for dinner. He's able to teach, which means he's able to take the scripture and help people understand what it means in its original context and its, in its contemporary application. He's not a drunkard. He has no known idolatry addiction. Speaking of addiction to substances generally, but it's not just limited to wine. He's not violent. The Greek word here is plektes, which means striker. Basically, you can't be an elder if you're getting into fist fights with church members or lost people in your city. Thank the Lord. He is gentle. He's lenient, willing to yield when yielding is possible. It's not referring to being soft or passive. He's not quarrelsome. You cannot be an elder if you turn most discussions into arguments. He's not a lover of money. He must not desire money more than God. Elders who love money will eventually put his love, this love, before the church. He must manage his own household well. This means to stand before, to rule, to be diligent, and be the spiritual leader in one's own family. You can't pastor or be an elder in the big church if you can't pastor in the little church, which is your home. If you can't teach your kids scripture, you can't teach the church scripture. Next is that he's not a recent convert. He must not be a newly sprung up Christian. He must be spiritually mature. He must be well thought of by outsiders. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. One who knows unbelievers and is respected for his faith. I don't know about you, but that's that's huge. Like these are not minimal qualifications. These are not things that we go, well, you know, he's been a part of our church for about the last six weeks. Why don't we have him serve? This is tested leadership. And when men are serving in this way, dying to themselves for the good of Jesus and for the good of the church, I would lovingly follow any of them. So if your challenge with this is, Well, I don't know what your challenge could be because these are character things. And the responsibility is enormous. The scriptures say that elders will be held responsible before God on judgment day for the spiritual health of a church. So it's not just, well, I want to be part of that. It's no, you're going to stand before God with how you treated people. Not only within the church, but on your street in your neighborhood, at your workplace. So you better do it with love 
and with service. We then have qualifications for deacons. This is the Greek word diokonos, which means servant. The role probably meant being responsible to various areas of service within the church. Now, it's very similar to elders, and their lives are to be shaped by the transforming message of the gospel, like elders. But deacons are not required to be able to teach. And remember that these lists focus on character rather than duties. So at Church of the City, our deacons are what is known as our leadership team. They are folks that are typically serving the elders board in uh, details around rental space here. And this is a role that we say is open to both men and women in our local congregation. Missional community leaders will be deacons and deaconesses. Uh, Leaders who are in charge of various ministries within our church will be considered deacons and deaconesses. And this is that role. So in summary, the mark of godly leadership is submission and service to our King Jesus who served us and submitted himself to the will and authority of the Father. This is on our next slide. The mark of godly leadership is submission and service to our King Jesus who served us and submitted himself to the will and to the authority of the Father. So what's the mark of this leadership? Submission and service. Why? Because an elder primarily understands how he's been served by Jesus Christ. And so he leads others in that way. I don't know about you, but I want to be in a church where this is what the leaders are called to. I want to be in a church that takes seriously its elders, that takes seriously their elders' character. See, as an elder in this church, I don't have the luxury to have an off day. I don't have the luxury of just being like, well, I'll read my Bible, you know, four days from now, we'll see how that goes. Believe it or not, London, Ontario is the spiritual warfare capital of Canada. You never know that, but that is apparently the case. And I heard a story of a pastor who was in a coffee shop there, and he noticed a group of teens who were praying around a table. And so he had his coffee, and then he went up to this table, and he said, hey, I just want to encourage you guys, it's so cool to see that you're all praying in public. Well, they responded with, um, I think you're mistaken, we're not on your team. And he said, well, what do you mean? We're praying to Satan. They then proceeded to show this pastor a list of all of the senior leaders and pastors within London. And they said that they were praying that these men would be unfaithful to their wives. This is the weight of leadership. This is not a weight that our leaders take lightly. This is not a committee that we sit on once a month and just, you know, talk about anything. We meet bi-weekly on Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for prayer, for encouragement to one another, and then to talk about each and every one of you as things come up and say, how can we serve them better? We're the ones that when you're sick, we go to your house, anoint you with oil, and pray for you. Why? Because this is how Christ serves the church. This is not a minimal role. This is an enormous responsibility. 
And as each of you have challenges or issues with our church, our elders must be available to you. Because leadership is to look like Jesus. And if leadership is godly, it will point you to Jesus. So let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, I recognize, God, that this is not easy stuff. That in some ways, God, this is a countercultural message. This is a countercultural understanding. God, in a culture that fights for rights rather than submission to one another. God, we recognize that as believers, we ultimately, God, have no rights because we've given them over to you in ultimate submission to you, Jesus. So I pray that if there is anyone in this room today, God, that they have understood submission in an abusive way, in a poor way, God, that you would redeem that understanding this morning. And so, God, may we not say and diminish elders and what they're called to and what they're supposed to be doing in the local church, but we would simply say, oh, I'm good. I don't have to be part of that because that's a big role. And God, I pray that the men in this congregation would step up. God, I pray that this would be a church where their men are known to be engaged In a culture, God, where men are diminishing their engagement each and every single day as men are sitting and playing video games and not getting involved in the culture in which they live, involved in sharing the gospel with their neighbors. Pray, God, that we would bear the responsibility that you have given us. That that's not a responsibility of domination, but that is a responsibility of service. God, I pray that you would forgive me for the ways in my own home. God, where I have diminished Andrea. God, where I have not held her up and desired her flourishing. I pray in the same way towards my son. May may I not be more drawn to my cell phone than getting on the ground and playing with my son. And I pray, Lord, for the elders of this congregation and the future churches that we will plant. I pray, God, that you would begin raising up men who understand this responsibility, walk into it, and submit ultimately to you. God, this church, I'm not a senior lead pastor, neither is James, God, because you are our lead and senior pastor. And so, God, we serve under you as our chief shepherd and as our leader, and may we simply obey and submit to you as we serve this congregation in Guelph. And God, may we understand what you're about. And may we be about the same things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.